Uh, if you're if you're new around here and you're like, what, who is this guy and why are they talking about Spokane? I'll, I'll explain a little bit about in a little bit. But my name is Matt, and I do have the privilege of uh, getting to open up the scriptures with you this morning and teaching and sharing a little bit of what God has been doing uh, in my and my wife's life over the last several years and what lies ahead for us. Um, but today we're gonna we're gonna study the scriptures. I'll share a little bit about that. But I want to start with a question. I want to ask you if you've ever felt like quitting, or you've ever felt like just giving up on this whole Jesus thing. Like if you're just tired of uh, the difficulties and the struggles that come with trying to be faithful to Jesus, and the thought has crept up and you've tried to ignore it, maybe I should just quit. Maybe I should just stop. And if you're here this morning, you're not alone in that. I've gone through that. Many of us have gone through that. We all have our stories. Uh, And so you're not alone. What we're going to do today is we're taking a break from our series in the book of Acts. And we're going to start a new series called Passages, which is just a series of passages through the scriptures. And the passage selected that I picked for this morning is in Hebrews 11 and 12. And the reason that I picked that passage is because I think it speaks to that question that I asked at the beginning. See, the church that received the letter of Hebrews, uh, they were tired. They were discouraged. They were broken down. They had received the message of the gospel at first with joy. And then now years later, people had stopped meeting together. Uh, They had grown sick and tired of being ostracized by society, treated as different and treated as weird, and and sick of the persecution that they faced from family members and from just the society as a whole. Uh, But to get you up to speed of of what's going on in the book of Hebrews, uh, you can turn there to Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, But Hebrews, overall, it contains a message of hope and a call to perseverance. Um, what's going on is because the church is tired and broken down, the author of Hebrews is trying to encourage the church. And by the time we get to Hebrews 11, what he's telling the church to do is to look back at the people of faith who've gone before them, to look backwards so that they might find encouragement for the here and now. So we're going to open up in Hebrews 11. And if we were going to start in verse 1, which we're not, You would hear stories about guys like Noah and uh, Jacob and Abraham and David and all these characters. But when we pick up in in verse 32, uh, we're going to see a lot of those those themes develop. So if we start in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, it says, And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released, so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. Verse 37, They were put to death by stoning, they were sawed in two, they were killed by the sword, 
They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what, it, received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us, they would be made perfect. Okay, let's pause there for a second. That's, there's a lot there. And as we read that, the sense that we get is that it's building towards something. There's name after name, situation after situation, difficulty after difficulty, and miracle after miracle. It's all building towards some sort of climax. It's all pointing us and moving us along towards something. And it is. It's pointing us along towards chapter 12. There's not, and originally there's not supposed to be a chapter break here. It's one flow of thought. So let's read in chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses— Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Okay, so we just read a lot, and it's packed with power. And remember that this is the author's encouragement to a tired and discouraged church who's going through suffering and disappointment and trouble. So what does the author do? Well, the author tells the audience, hey, look back at the people who've gone before you, the people who've been faithful to God and and walked in faith their entire lives. We learn about these different characters in chapter 11. There's uh, Gideon and Barak and Samson. These are guys from Judges. And you see all these other characters from the Old Testament. So no, of course they're not perfect, but in some small way they model faithfulness and what it means to, be, to have faith in God. Notice in verse 33, it is through faith that they conquer kingdoms, administer justice, and do this stuff. Uh, These models of faith, they do great things, but they also go through great suffering. In verse 37, you see they're put put to death, they're sought in two. Uh, And then in verse 39, we see that these were all commended for their faith. So the author of Hebrews is telling his tired, disappointed, and discouraged audience, hey, look, this is what the people of God do. This This is what we do. We're not perfect, but we're called to be faithful to God, especially when evil comes our way and and we're cast out or rejected by society or even persecuted. But the author's reasoning doesn't stop there. It's not just look at these Old Testament models of faith. That's why we get chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. We're going to read it again because it's really good. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses— Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So the image that we get is of a race. 
There's, there is a race, and it's not a sprint, but it's an endurance race, like a marathon. And these Old Testament characters are the ones who've gone through, they've, fin- they've gone through the finish line, and now they're the witnesses who surround us as we are finishing our race. But these Old Testament characters in chapter 11, they're not the stars of the show. There's really only one perfect example, the, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. There's only one star runner in the race, and that's Jesus. So the picture is of a race. Uh, I don't know if any of you are endurance runners. Uh, I was not for a long time. I actually got the privilege to run Hood to Coast two years ago with a lot of people in the room, actually. It was a really fun experience. So if you're not familiar with Hood to Coast, uh, it's this— tw- uh, 12 people are on a team. It's a relay race. You run from Mount Hood to Seaside on the Oregon coast. And over a 24-hour long period, you run three sections of this race. I had uh, an interesting section because I overall had like 13 miles to run, which isn't a lot. But my first two legs were a lot shorter than my last leg. So on day two, after five hours of sleep, I, I woke up in the morning, ran four miles, and then you try and sleep in the van, but everybody's hot and sweaty, and you just ran, so it's not like you could take a nap. And my, my last leg was seven miles, out kind of towards Astoria. And no lie, it was about six miles of just a straight line. You could see where you were, and you could see six miles away where you had to end. Or so I thought. So, and the, I was not—I <laughs> did great in the beginning, but my last leg was not so great. Uh, I was working out five hours of sleep— and to be honest, I had to go to ba- the bathroom the entire time, <laughs> which is not fun. So as I'm running, to add on to all that bad stuff, I had my phone with me to see, make sure I was on pace, because my first two legs, I was ahead of pace. And uh, little did I know that my phone was off. So I'm running. I'm kind of struggling, but I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm three-quarters of the way there. And so I said that to a girl as she was passing me. I said, oh, we're almost there. And she kind of gave me this weird look. And then the second lady, as she passed me, said, oh, we're almost there. And she said, and she looked at her watch, which actually had a GPS. Mine was just like a pedometer. And she said, uh, we're not even halfway there. <laughs> at that point, I had the like deep sinking feeling, which was I'm either going to pass out or I'm going to throw up or I'm going to soil myself. And then I'm going to have to explain it to the people when I have to get back in the van. And I can't tell you how amazing the feeling was because I was there was a curve. So you see the straight line and there's a curve in like another mile after that. But at mile 6.75, when you can see the vans and you can see the other people who finish running, you can see that finish line. Oh, I can't explain how good that feeling of I'm there, how good that feels. It's, it's just an amazing feeling to know where the finish line is. So what the author is doing in Hebrews— is telling us that we're running an endurance race. Uh, it's not only the, the original recipients of the letter of Hebrews, but it's for us today. We are running an endurance, a marathon race. And, and what is this race? This race is the calling to be faithful to Jesus. It's to live by faith and faithfulness. That's, that's faithful to spend time with Jesus when it's easier to check Facebook and Instagram. That's faithful to do the things that Jesus commands us to do when everybody else around us is just doing whatever seems right. That's faithful to love and serve and share the gospel with people when it's, it's easier just to be selfish and do our own things. The, the witnesses in Hebrews 11 are the people who've been faithful to God and trusted in his provision all throughout their lives and they've finished the race. 
Now, when I uh, read this passage in the past, what I got, the picture I got was like, there's this race going on, there's a bunch of witnesses in a big stadium, and they're watching me. Because if there's a race and there's a bunch of people there, they're going to be obviously watching me. But that's not the picture that we get here. Uh, that's not even really the primary sense of the word witness is. It's more like, if you remember back to the beginning of the series in Acts, where you see in, in Acts 1.8, where Jesus tells his disciples that they'll be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. So, so what the author is saying is that these people are witnessing to or pointing to something. And they're pointing to faithfulness to God. And like that feeling at mile six and a half— which is, oh, those people finished. Maybe I, can, maybe I can make it too. That's the picture that we get here of Hebrews 11. Um, we look at people like David or we look at people like Samuel throughout the Old Testament and see how they, yes, they failed, but how they lived lives of faithfulness to God. Please forgive the sports analogies, but I think another thing that I think of when I think of this, this picture that the author gives us is when I first started playing football— um, I was a sixth grader, and I had childhood asthma, and I was not in great shape, and I hated conditioning. I hated the end of every practice where you had to run, because it didn't make any sense to me why I needed to do that. I was a lineman. I didn't need to run, but everybody had to do it, and sure enough, every single time, I'd have this like panic attack, start wheezing, and the, really, there's only two ways that I ever finished the drill, the conditioning drills was when one coach would come alongside me and he'd kind of just calmly say to me, hey, Karsha, you can finish. You can make it. Or those other times where I was so far behind everybody else that when they got through and they finished, they circled back and kind of came back and ran with me as I finished through the finish line. And that's the picture that we're getting here of these witnesses who are surrounding us that we see they're, they're named in chapter 11, and then we see that they're pointed out in 12.1. See, what we read all throughout chapter 11 is of these good examples of faith. But what we see in 12.1 through 3 is that although these are good examples of faith, there's only one perfect example of faith and faithfulness, and that's Jesus. So Jesus is described as the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Now, if you've memorized this passage in the past— Uh, You might have memorized Jesus as the author and finisher, our author and perfecter of our faith. Uh, What's going on here, and we can see it in uh, the NIV, is the word our in a lot of translations is just inserted to try and make sense of the Greek. It's trying to make sense of what's going on. But, But literally, the sentence is just of faith. And so what we see going on here is that Jesus— is this model, this perfect example. So I've, I've even taught this passage before to say Jesus is the perfecter of our faith, meaning, meaning he carries us along to completion. Which, although that might be true, that's not the point that the author in Hebrews is trying to make. What the, the, the author in Hebrews is trying to make is that there's a bunch of little H heroes all throughout chapter 11, but when we get to chapter 12, there's only one hero, and that's Jesus. The 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 word for, for pioneer, what it means is that Jesus is, he's the trailblazer. He's the originator. He does it in a whole new way. He's the wholly new model of what it means to live by faith and faithfulness. Uh, and then the word for perfecter, I found a really helpful uh, definition that we're going to put on the screen. It says that 
um, just this word perfecter, is one who has in his own person raised faith to its perfection and so set before us the highest example of faith. So Jesus, by living a life of perfect faith, has shown us this perfect example of what it means to walk by faith and faithfulness. So looking at Jesus shows us the first and best example of what true faithfulness is all about. If we look down in verse 2, there's this really interesting phrase that I just want to hit on really quickly. It says, uh, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now this phrase, scorning its shame, I don't have time to really dig deep into it, but what the author is doing is he's speaking to an audience who is experiencing a lot of shame, either from people around them or, or from their family members or just from their life situation. They're experiencing a whole lot of shame. And what the author is saying is look to Jesus because he's gone through the most shameful thing you possibly could go through. Not only was he crucified, which is a shameful death, but he was put up to, as, a, as an example naked and abandoned by his friends, the most shameful thing you could possibly go through. And so what he's saying is Jesus has gone through it, but then been victorious. That's, that's the, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus has gone through this intense shame. And remember why the audience needs to hear this. They're tired, they're hurting, they're broken down. If we read all through Hebrews, what we find out is that yes, they received the message great at first, But some of them had given up on meeting together. Some of them had walked away from Jesus. Some people had returned to their old ways of life. And that's why verse 3 is here, where it says, Consider him, that's Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you, that's the people listening to this read out loud, that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Because it's so easy to grow weary and lose heart. I'm sure that if you've been following Jesus for any amount of time, you have friends or family members who have grown, grown weary and lost heart. And maybe you have as well. And some of those people have even dropped out of the race. So maybe they were running okay for a period of time, but they just grew weary, they grew tired. They waved the white flag and tapped out. Or maybe it's, it's, they were just carrying too much. They hit an obstacle and couldn't get over it. Or, or maybe they were just carrying the weight of sin and it dragged them out of the race. That happens. See, the life of following Jesus is like a marathon race, and it's tempting at times to give up. It really is. But there is a finish line ahead— And though it might look easier to stop, the encouragement from Hebrews and the encouragement from looking to Jesus is to keep on going. But what about us? How do we not fall prey to that same giving up? How do we not tap out? How do we not wave the white flag? Let's focus in on the race. And let's start by personalizing it. So I think that there's two kind of two layers to what's going on here with the concept of a race. Uh, On the one sense, there's this big thing that everybody's called to, which is faith and faithfulness to Jesus. These things I listed out before, uh, the life of faith and faithfulness to Jesus, which is something we're all called to do. That's, That's something every single one of us are called to. But there's also your race. 
There's Jake's race. There's Ben's race. There's Katie's race. What's your race? I'll share a little bit of mine, um, and I'll focus a lot on Spokane. So I feel like God's called me to two things in this life. One is to army chaplaincy, and one is to planting a church in Spokane, Washington, which sounds really crazy, right? Uh, I'm not from Spokane. I really have no background there. But to give you a bit of backdrop of why, uh, why we're talking about Spokane, when I was in college, I played football at Lewis and Clark. Go Pios. Nobody watches Division Three college football on TV? Thank you, somebody. So I played football, and we played Whitworth, which is in Spokane. And I was there, I was sitting on a bus with the team in downtown Spokane, and just sitting there, and felt like I, I heard from God. It wasn't the audible voice of God, but it was this impression, this idea, this clear sense that God said to me, there's going to be a church here. And at the time, I, I'm like, okay, cool. And I moved on. I didn't think anything of it. I didn't talk about it. I didn't, really didn't, that, okay. And it wasn't until months or maybe even a year later that a mentor, a guy I was meeting with once a week, he asked me, he said, Matt, do you ever feel like God's called you to plant a church? I said, well, you know, there was this one thing in Spokane, but A, it's Spokane. And B, like, I don't even, what do, how do you do that? Like, what, how do you go from being, I was a history major in college. How do you go from being a history major at Lewis and Clark to planting a church in Spokane? I, and what happened after I said that was really something clicked. Something clicked and was like, oh, this is really what I'm supposed to do. This is what God's calling me to. God's calling me to be a part of a church plant in Spokane. And after talking about it with people and sharing the stories, I've, I got to learn more and more things about Spokane and got to learn more and more things about myself. And over time, this idea just got confirmed over and over again. So to give you a bit of backdrop on Spokane, uh, it's a really interesting and needy place. Uh, if we just start with social statistics, it's, it's just really interesting. And for all of you who have prejudices against Spokane, I'm going to confirm them at first and then, and then challenge you after that. So, and these are real stats. I looked them up and have spent time researching this. Spokane is in the 98th percentile of crime rates in the United States, which means that it has more crime than 98% of other cities in the entire country. You have a 1 in 14 chance of being a victim of burglary, arson, or car theft. 1 in 14, which I wish I could do math really quickly because I could just, you know, every couple people like, yep, 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 yep. And this is really funny to me because when I switched my car insurance to our new address in Spokane, my rates went down. So don't tell USAA, this, this is true. <laughs> um... Spokane has the two zip codes with the worst poverty in the state of Washington. A baffling stat. 25% of people, a quarter of people in Spokane live below the poverty line. We can turn also, um, besides just social stats, we can look at kind of the spiritual dynamic of the city. Um, and I'll look at the, just the quantifiable things. If you want to talk about stats afterwards, I'd love to talk about it. Um, but it, especially in comparison to Portland, because people think, oh, maybe Spokane's Eastern Washington, so it's this conservative place, so they probably have enough churches. Why are you even moving there? I've gotten that reaction. 
So if you look at uh, the church, most churchless cities, the, the cities with the least amount of churches per person, Portland is ranked number 13, Spokane's 23, not far off. If you look at a stat, just how much of Spokane is considered post-Christian, which means they've been exposed to the gospel or gone to church as a kid and since walked away, Portland and the metro area around Portland is about 50%, and Spokane is 44%. It's not that different. You want to hear the most baffling and uh, heartbreaking and yet motivating stat of all. If you compile all this stuff from population of the Spokane metro area and look at just all these stats— what we see is that 400,000 people do not know the hope of Jesus Christ. 400,000 people in Spokane do not know Jesus. So we, this is a big, big calling, but we are moving, and I'm not alone in this, we are moving so that 400,000 people might come to faith in Jesus and partner with his, him in his mission in the world. I said I'm not alone in this because there's actually— so my wife and I are moving. I'm not moving alone. That's a good thing. Um, One of our friends has already moved to Spokane. There's another guy. I think Austin's sitting over there somewhere. He's moving too at the end of the summer. Uh, And and honestly, uh, Jose said I was allowed to do this. All of you are invited. (laughs) You really are all invited to come. And, and you're all—seriously, though, you're all invited to partner with us. And you already have by being a part of Sunset. You've already partnered with what's going on. Uh, but I do seriously mean it on, on a several levels. Maybe it's moving. Maybe it's not. And for most of you, it won't be. Some of you, it might. Uh, but there's multiple ways that you can partner with us. And I do seriously mean this. We got an apartment with two bedrooms for the reason that we want people to come stay with us. Both people in the city, but also you all. If you want to come out— and, and check out Spokane, come and stay with us. We have an extra bedroom, so just let me know. I'll give you my phone number. I'll give you my email. You can come and stay with us. I'll invite you again before the end of the teaching, so don't worry. If you know me, if you've talked about Spokane before, I, I get annoying in talking about Spokane. And Jenna, it was several weeks ago now, but she's, you know, you maybe like toned down the whole just trying to drag people along. So if I get annoying, I'm sorry, but I'm passionate about this. But what's your race? That's, that's mine. That's ours. But what's yours? Uh, maybe it's to be a mom who loves her kids well and serves them well and raises them well. Maybe it's to be a banker who loves your spouse well and, and raises your kids and, is a, and to raises them to be passionate followers of Jesus and serves here. Maybe, maybe you're, you're a young single person or, or an older single person. You don't have a family, but you love serving with kids because you get a connection there. You don't have a family of your own. I don't know what your race is, but I know that God has something for you to do. I know that God has a race for you to run. And some of you, even in hearing that, the picture that I get is, is that you maybe you're still sitting in the starting blocks. Maybe you're still sitting there. And now you're so discouraged because everyone else who you, who were in the blocks together with are so far out in front of you. You're like, well, I, I might as well not even run now. I'm convinced that some, in a crowd this size, that there's some people who are sitting there and the encouragement 
is just run. It's not a competition. Jesus already ran the race. So just run. Run the race that God has put out for you. Because you didn't earn your way into the race. Jesus just dropped you into it. So run and run with the power that God provides. We're going to finish out here and just talk about how-tos, the how-tos of running this race and running it well. And to do that, let's start back down in Hebrews 12, verse 1. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Stop there. Some things in life have to be rejected if we're going to run this race well. Sin hinders your ability to run this race. So the first how-to of running well is to reject sin. Sin ruins your ability to run well. As I say that, what I don't want you to just put this in the box of, oh, this is another thing. I know I'm not supposed to do that thing. Because even as I say sin— I'm sure that some of you will immediately picture something in your mind. Oh, he's talking about fill in the blank. For me, whenever I would hear any sort of, any sort of talking about sin, especially a teaching on the weekend, I, I would fill it in with the sexual sin I was trying to hide. And I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's laziness. I really don't know what it is for you. But I know that all of that is sin, and I know that all of it is ruining your ability to run the race. The picture that the author of Hebrews gets us, gives us is, is trying to run the race, carrying, carrying that stuff, is like trying to run with a net around your feet. Or trying to run a marathon carrying two 40-pound dumbbells. It's not going to work out well. And so the call is to just drop them, let go of them. Not, not just because you're being told not to do it, but because it's destroying you. It's destructive. If you want to run this race, you can't hold on to that stuff. It's, it's not going to turn out well. Secondly, if we, if we read in uh, the end of verse 1, it says, And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Uh, just word perseverance. So we are called to run with perseverance or to keep on going, and I added this word in here, patient endurance. It's not a sprint. Uh, Jesus tells a parable along the same lines in Matthew chapter 13, and he describes different types of people and how they respond to his message. Some people receive it but they're like plants who have really shallow roots and they're, they're burned up by the sun. And the, the, the type of person is someone who's, uh, when trouble and persecution comes, they fall away. Or there's other types of people who they receive, they receive the message at first and they actually start to grow, but they're choked out by the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth. There are things in this world that are fighting against your ability to run this race. It might be other people. It might be just the world out there. It might be things unseen, but there are things fighting against your ability to run this race. And so we are called to run with patient endurance. 
Like I said, if you've ever run an endurance race, uh, that means sometimes it, it's painful. One of the other analogies I think of when I think of endurance and patient endurance is the dentist. Bear with me. So, when you go into the dentist, you, you actually bear with and deal with a lot of pain and uncomfortableness. The scratching and then the <laughs> thing. Yeah, you all know it. It's a vivid picture now. We, we bear with that and we go through that because there's a, there's a finish line. There's a better end state at the end of it. So we go through this time of pain because there's something better at the end. I had to just vent it. I went to the dentist on Wednesday and I had to think about, I hate the dentist, not the person, but just the process of being scraped. So I had to think of something as I was going through that. It's patient endurance. There's a better end state. All that to say, there's times when you're running an endurance race where you feel great and you're doing great. It's just, oh, this is easy. You run a little bit faster. Like those three legs that I talked about when I ran hood to coast. There's times I felt great. There's other times where it didn't. It was really hard. Well, I really wish that if anyone else was around, I could have just stopped and sat on the side of the road and just checked myself out of it. We're called to run and keep on going with patient endurance. That's to keep on in that faithfulness to Jesus, to keep on growing, to keep on going with whatever race God has placed before you. So first, in order to run this race well, we've got to reject sin— And secondly, we are called to keep on going with patient endurance. Um, The third point is actually the most crucial one, because the third point is what makes this a uniquely gospel kind of message. So if we look down in verse 2, notice it tells us how to run the race. It says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. So, the third how-to of running this well is focusing on Jesus. It is so easy to get distracted. When we, when we start, when we take our eyes off of Jesus and we start looking at the way other people are running or we start looking at the birds in the sky or we start, we start worrying about other things, it's really easy to get distracted and discouraged. But the call here in Hebrews is to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. And what that means is to have a right view of who Jesus is and to remain focused on the sorts of things that he does. So when we run into obstacles, we look to how Jesus handled the same obstacles. Or we can, we can consider how he would if he were in that same situation. Think about how Jesus handled uh, when he was abandoned by his friends— or what happened when he faced resistance, or what happened when he's praying in the garden in in blood and sweat when he's about to be put to death. And what that means for us is, is we look to Jesus and his example when we get the diagnosis and hear that the tumor is malignant. Or that we find out that, that you've lost your child. Or you find out that you've lost your job. Jesus is the one who shows us what it is to live a life of faith and faithfulness, especially in a broken and messed up world. So just run back through those. First, we're called to reject sin. Secondly, 
keep on going with patient endurance. And then thirdly, we're called to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. Thinking about Spokane again and running it through those, those three how-tos, there's really, really simply, there's only one way that, that we could possibly do this well, to, to achieve that 400,000, to, to share the gospel faithfully, is with our eyes on Jesus. And, and it's not going to happen overnight. It's really not. It's going to be a long, enduring process. And it's not probably going to happen in a year. And there's going to be times of pain, and there's going to be times of struggle, and there's going to be times where it's no fun, and there's going to be great times where we see really great things happening, and, and it's a lot of fun, and we love doing it. There's these ebbs and flows to the race we're going to run. I'm really thankful for you and how you have walked and ran with my wife and I over the last, uh, we've been married for a year, but I've been here for three years. I'm really thankful for you guys. I'm so thankful for Sunset. Uh, Like Jose said and Kenny said, this is actually my last Sunday uh, as the director of missional communities. Uh, we are in the process of moving. Got an apartment, like I said. But I just wanted to say thank you. Thank you for encouraging us. Thank you for coming alongside us. Thank you to the countless people who I've gotten to to talk with and serve with. And I, I just, uh, running through the list, I'm thankful for the leaders. I'm thankful for the mentors who, who have given me opportunities, who have always listened to my input, who have always asked for it. I'm thankful for for the leadership. I'm also thankful for the countless numbers of you who who have awesome kids who I've gotten to spend every single week with over the last uh, three years. I'm thankful for uh, the coffee communion food team. I'm thankful for the setup team, especially when we were at Liberty High School. That was hard. I'm thankful for the for the kids workers because when I go back there and I hear like babies screaming and crying and they're just joyfully trying to bounce the baby, make the baby happy. I'm so thankful for all of you. And you you've been running the race really well, and and I'm encouraged and excited to hopefully I'll be back in the fall. That's the goal. I know Jose is going to continue sharing about what's going on in Spokane. We'll stay in conversation, and hopefully I'll be back in the fall and in in the months to come. Um, so I'm excited to see what happens at Sunset over the next three months, over the next three years, over the next three decades. Because God has started something here. You guys have, we have started running. And I'm just excited to see where it leads. Uh, and I do sincerely mean the invitation to come and visit us in Spokane. Um, like I said, there's a lot of ways to be a part of what's going what's gonna to happen there. And um, you can chat with me. I'll be hanging out afterwards, uh, if you want to, if you want to talk more about that stuff. Um, As I close out, I'm going to invite Brandon and the crew back. Um, But I started by asking if some of you felt like giving up. Um, I'm so impressed by the, by the people in this room. So as I look around, as I was thinking through this and writing this, I just thought of story after story of so many of you who are doing this really well, who are running the race with perseverance. And so, so the, the statement from Jesus is, well done, keep going. Keep going. The finish line is out there. It's in sight. And in the meantime, keep your eyes focused on Jesus. 
And if you feel like you haven't started running yet, just start, just start running. Because we are all in this race. It's not a competition between us. We keep our eyes focused on Jesus. So the call for each of us is to run and to run well.